Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Hi, everybody. I'm so glad to finally see you. I was just thinking this morning, I really wish we were all together. Uh, you can't even imagine how how much I wanted to meet you all in person. Um, I really appreciate you doing this virtually and arranging your schedule. And I just think you're all brilliant. And um, I hope I don't weep at your, at your feet, <laughs> um, so to speak, virtually. Uh, as I ask you these questions, and I really appreciate, um, again, uh, you being here. And welcome to the Mississippi Book Festival uh, that we're doing virtually. Um, and I know a lot of people um, I've heard from are really excited about this particular panel. Um, I know that a lot of people who attend the book festival are also writers and uh, people who are interested in writing their own memoirs. So I know that the answers to these questions that I've piled up on you are, are going to be important to them to hear. And I have um, every sense that we're not going to go, we're not going to make it through all these questions. So I apologize for being a little over-enthusiastic about the number of questions that I had for you. <laughs> So I thought if it's okay with you all to just begin, and um, I will introduce um, you in the order that um, I, I emailed to you, um, starting with Allison, and then Brian, and then Elizabeth. And then after um, I introduce you, then you could read a, a snippet from your uh, memoir, and then we can go into the questions, if that's, all, if that's okay. That and sounds then, good. Okay, good. <laughs> And um, Sarah is good enough to, she's going to let me know kind of a, when our time is sort of winding up. So I'll let you know when she lets me know. So Allison, I'd love to start with you. And um, Allison Moore is a singer, songwriter, producer, and author who has released 10 critically acclaimed albums. Her first memoir, Blood, was released in October 2019 to high praise and received starred reviews in Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Bookfest. She's been nominated for Academy, Grammy, Americana Music Association, and Academy of Country Music Awards. Allison received an MFA in creative writing from the New School. Her work has been published in the Wall Street Journal, American Songwriter, Guernica, No Depression, Literary Hub, and The Bitter Southerner. She's received the Hall Waters Prize for Excellence in Southern Writing in 2020. Her second memoir, I Dream He Talks to Me, will be released in October 2021. She lives in Nashville, and I think Allison's going to read from her book, Blood. Good morning. This book came out in October 2019 in a much different world. So it, it uh, I just did an event this past weekend at which I read from this book and it's been a while <laughs> since I have, it was sort of like, you know, where did all that time go? I don't know, but I usually like to just read the beginning because although this is a, a memoir of my childhood, I kind of go by the Annie Dillard rule. 
which is uh, get all of your tragedies, deaths, maladies, sicknesses, whatever, out of the way. Um, don't tease the reader. Just get it out there. I didn't feel like it would be fair to not say uh, what one of the defining events of my childhood and life has been. So I'll just read the first couple pages. This is my version of the story. It is the only one I can tell. Tuesday morning, August 12th, 1986. It was still dark outside and they were gone just like that. Daddy had called the house on Barden Avenue over and over the night before. Mama, in typical fashion, kept answering, though each time the phone rang, I tried to talk her out of doing so. She eventually took it off the hook and we all went to bed. I slept on a pallet on the living room floor that night because Mama's friend Carolyn stayed over out of fear of what Daddy might do. The air felt dangerous, glitchy and staticky, as if there was electricity running through everything. It had rained all day, but the downpour provided no cooling effect and only made things feel angrier than they already did. Maybe you have to have lived in the deep, thick Southeast to understand what angry air feels like. Mama seemed worried and Daddy was desperate. She was trying to talk him down from the ledge again, but even she couldn't do it this time. Her side of the conversation dwindled to repetitions of, I know, and, well, Frank, by the time she gave up, I don't know what sort of things he said, but I can imagine. There wasn't anything she could have done to soothe him but go back to him, to make it like it had been before we left. How it had been before we left wasn't good. I woke up and saw him standing in the kitchen. It wasn't unusual for him to come around in the mornings. He often did after Mama and I moved out of the trailer, but he had never been there quite so early. Daddy had always been one to stay up all night and sleep late into the day, but by that time he was so fraught he couldn't settle down or quiet his mind enough to let it or his body rest. I gazed across the room through sleepy, half-open eyes. Daddy leaned against the breakfast table that he'd made a few years earlier. I saw Mama's right side. She was wearing her winter house coat, a strange choice for August. The cabinet where she kept the coffee maker obscured her left side as she made the day's first pot. Since she had to be at work at 8.30 in the morning, she probably decided to just go ahead and start her day since Daddy wasn't going to let her have any peace. He'd obviously gone to her bedroom window and knocked on it to wake her because I was the closest to both entrances to the house and hadn't heard him bang on the door. Her winter house coat was navy blue velour. She's had it for years. She used to get home from work, take off her clothes, and swaddle herself in it when it was cool weather. The summer house coat that she should have been wearing was white with yellow and orange flowers. She'd, she'd made it out of seersucker in a wrap dress style with cap sleeves and orange binding. I didn't see if she had on shoes. Knowing her, probably not. Neither of them saw me stir. There was nothing out of the ordinary going on. I went back to sleep. I think it was around 5 a.m. when the gunshots woke me. There were two. They came very close to one another. Imagine the sound of a 30 6 rifle firing, and then think of the time it takes to snap your fingers four times to the tempo of 13 by Big Star. Then imagine it firing again. I lay there for what feels now like a few minutes, terrified to move even a centimeter or even to breathe. My eyes darted around the barely lit living room for a clue about what to do. I knew without question what I'd heard, the unmistakable sound that takes a life. But I couldn't quite comprehend that I'd heard that sound coming from the front yard that was just on the other side of the living room wall. 
I was only a few feet away. I wondered if it could have been thunder left over from the storm that came the day before, or maybe another one coming. I wondered if it could have been something else that might imitate the vibrations from a cannon. No, I knew it wasn't anything but what I knew it was. I'd been close enough to guns to recognize exactly the sound they make. A pop, but a little longer than a pop. A burst, violent and hard, then the reverberation. I told myself no, it couldn't be what I knew it was, even as I simultaneously started rearranging every cell in my body to start accepting that yes, it was. Yes, I knew that it was. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. I, I, I really think it's um, uh, important too for for audiences to hear hear you all read because um, may, and to see your dog and to, and to meet your whole your whole um, life. <laughs> Sorry, it's <laughs> wonderful. Um, thank you, Brian. Um, I'd love to introduce you now. Brian Broom is the author of Punch Me Up to the Gods. Brian is a poet and a screenwriter and the K. Leroy Irvis Fellow and instructor in the writing program at the University of Pittsburgh. He's been a finalist in the Moth Storytelling Competition and won the grand prize in Carnegie Mellon University's Martin Luther King Writing Awards. He also won a Van Award from the Pittsburgh Black Media Federation for Journalism in 2019. And he lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Brian will read now from Punch Me Up to the Gods. Thank you so much. I just want to read like a little tiny snippet. Um, The book deals with um, issues around masculinity and being a Black man and what those things mean um, and what they don't mean. And this little snippet comes from uh, the beginning of the book where I um, am standing at a bus stop and there is a a young black father with his son um, and his son falls over and hits his head and starts crying. And this is uh, right in the middle of his his father's efforts to stop him from crying without tending to him. Tuan's father picks the boy up off the ground and places him on the bus stop bench before turning back to the flickering lights in his cell phone. Tuan has no interest in shaking it off. Be a man, Tuan, the boy's father says, out of the corner of his mouth, eyes steady on his phone. Tuan has no interest in being a man, and his screaming continues. Tuan's father kneels down, grips the boy by the shoulders, and looks him straight in the eyes. Stop crying. Be a man, Tuan. Be a man. When I was a boy, I used to sit on our back steps of our house after an ass whooping, because afterward, I was always commanded not to leave our yard. My father would wander out after a long while with his head down and the same hands he'd just used to whoop my ass shoved deeply into his pockets. Instead of letting the screen door slam as he normally would, he would close it carefully. He knew he had let his temper get the best of him, and so he would come out weighed down by a remorse he was unable to express with words. He'd just sit down next to me and quietly look off into the distance. He'd fish a packet of Winstons out of his pocket and place one between his lips, use both hands on his lighter to light it, and exhale a thick cloud of ivory smoke. For a little while, 
he and I would share a silence that was occasionally broken by my hiccuping sobs and sharp intakes of air. Sometimes he would come out bearing gifts, a popsicle or a candy bar that he'd hand to me wordlessly while still looking out on the backyard. And we'd sit there until he couldn't take listening to my sopping, wet whimpering any longer. And he'd command me suddenly as if he'd just woken from a dream, stop crying. You done cried enough, stop crying right now. I would stop immediately. As Tuan's father's voice becomes louder, demanding that the boy stop crying, all I want to do is pick the boy up to make sure he's all right. I can't explain it. Something to do with his shoulders being held in a vice-like grip by the very person he needs tenderness from in this moment. Something about the unaddressed ache. And I realize that this, what I'm witnessing, is the playing out of one of the very conditions that have dogged me my entire existence, this being a man to the exclusion of all other things. As Tuan's father publicly chastises him for his tears, I remember how my own tears were seen as an affront. I remember how my father looked at me as if I was leaking gasoline and about to set the whole concept of black manhood on fire. Stop crying, be a man. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, I want to I, I want to go in and start asking more questions, but I, um, we'll, we'll, let's move on. I'd love to introduce Elizabeth now and her wonderful memoir, Elizabeth Mickey Brina's memoir and debut book, Speak Okinawa, was published in February of 2021 by Knopf uh, Doubleday. She's the recipient of a Rona Jaffe Bread Loaf Scholarship and a New York State Summer Writers Institute Scholarship. Her work has appeared in The Sun, River Teeth, Lit Hub, and Gulf Coast Magazine, among others. She currently lives and teaches in New Orleans, and Elizabeth is going to read now from her book, Speak Okinawa. Thank you very much. I'm going to read um, from a chapter called uh, Elizabeth, um, which is how... Um, my mother used to pronounce my name and uh, it yeah, it just goes over some of my, my earliest memories. My name is Elizabeth, which means God's oath in Hebrew. It means I speak the truth. It means God can swear by me. I am named Elizabeth after my father's mother, after my father's mother's mother, after my father's mother's mother's mother, and so on. It is a family name, a queen's name. It is Anglo, it is Western, it is white, like my father. I can't remember exactly when I began to notice that my mother didn't pronounce my name the same way as my father. That my father pronounced my name the same way as my neighbors, teachers, classmates, friends, and friends' parents, so therefore correctly. Therefore, my mother's pronunciation was wrong. I am four years old. I am waiting for my mother to pick me up from preschool. Some of the children sit in circles on the lawn, but I prefer to wait on the porch where all the lunchboxes are stacked in a row along the banister. I lift each lunchbox one by one and look at the lids, Sesame Street, Star Wars, Strawberry Shortcake, Transformers, Gem. I carefully select the lunchbox to hold while I sit on the steps of the porch and wait. Not because I don't care for my own lunchbox, which is Cabbage Patch. I just want to hold something new pretend to be someone else. When my mother arrives, I return the borrowed lunchbox and retrieve my own. No one ever seems to mind, or I never get caught, 
My mother is usually the first to arrive, and she hurries me into the car without lingering for a few minutes to have a quick chat with the other mothers. Goodbye, Elizabeth. Goodbye, Mrs. Brina, the teacher says and waves. My mother nods and bows. I see her face. I see the faces of the other mothers. I hear her voice. I hear the voices of the other mothers. I compare. These are the first lessons we are taught in preschool. Which one is not like the others? We are taught to match. Colors with corresponding colors, shape with corresponding shapes, fruits with other fruits. A tree does not belong in a group labeled animal. We are taught that sameness is correct. Sameness is desired. One afternoon, when my mother picks me up from preschool, I notice that she has changed, or rather, her hair has changed. She used to have hair flowing down to her waist like water. She used to brush it a hundred times, twist it in a coil, tie it in a knot on top of her head, and then hold it in place with a wooden pin. I see her step out of the car with her new hair, chopped at her shoulders, blow-dried, curled, and sprayed. She smiles, and when I don't smile, her smile fades. I shake my head. That was her most beautiful part, her only beautiful part. This isn't how my mother is supposed to look. This isn't how women who look like my mother are supposed to look. Nice try, mom. She is still different. She can't really change. When my father comes home from work that day, I ask him if he likes her new hair. And he says, yes, of course he likes it, if she likes it. But I know that means he doesn't. All three of us knows that means he doesn't. I don't know what I expect from her, what I want from her. I guess I just want her to be American, a white English speaking, correctly pronouncing American. My mother saves her hair in a bright red box where she also saves a pair of the first socks she knitted for me when I was a baby and the wristband I wore at the hospital on the day I was born. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Those were all just um, beautiful readings and um, I would love for you to continue to read to us all. Um, but um, welcome again to the Mississippi Book Festival. And my name is Margaret McMullen. I'm so um, honored to be your moderator. And um, let's get started with questions about your wonderful writing, your beautiful books, and um, the power that um, I think that each sentence of yours holds, um, all of you really. Um, you're all so young. And yet you have such perspective on your past selves. When and how did you know you were ready to write this memoir? How did you prepare yourselves for the deep dive into your past? And how did you take care of yourselves during the process? And why don't we just go ahead and start with Allison? Uh, thank you, Margaret. I, I did not have in mind to write a book until... My son, John Henry, was born in 2010. And something about him coming into the world, plus um, a question from a really amazing, famous person, <laughs> spurred this on in me. When John Henry was about six weeks old, I was asked to be a guest on Maya Angelou's radio show, which in, in itself was an incredible experience. But she asked, we were talking about our childhoods. And... Uh, not exactly comparing horrors, but acknowledging through not exactly acknowledging that we had some common threads in our lives. And uh, she asked me about my parents who, who died in a murder-suicide when I was 14. 
you know, asked me about that. And then, and I delivered some, uh, you know, prepared sort of platitude that I had in my back pocket that I'd been carrying with me for years. Uh, something about, oh, you know, their lives were more important than their deaths and, you know, this kind of thing that is true, but doesn't really get the point across. And so she said, uh-huh, yeah, and now you have John Henry. What are you going to tell him? And I said, Ugh, I don't know. I don't know. So that comment from her, that question from her really put in me this this question, what am I going to tell him? And for whatever reason, I was inspired to start writing. And I think having him opened up some things in me that were not open before. And I just began. Now, I will say, because I've, I've made music for a long time, I, I released my first album when I was 26 years old. I look back on, as a songwriter, having written those records, I look back on that and I think, you know, I've been, I've been dealing in memoir for a very long time. I just, it took me a while to get enough tools in my toolbox to actually write prose. And I think I had to uh, process my childhood for a very long time before I could put it into anything resembling a decent sentence. You know, abstract things are, are one thing, feelings are another. You get shards of light and deep, dark hanging clouds that can come through in in a more... Uh, poetic way when you're writing songs. That doesn't necessarily work. In fact, it really doesn't work at all when you're writing prose. So I had to develop as a person and as a writer and as a a person who could think well. And I'm not sure I could do that until I got old enough and healed enough to do that. And uh, But I will say that writing blood sort of cemented the healing process for me. I was a different person by the time I got finished writing that book. Brian, how did you feel you were ready? And how did you prepare yourself? How did you know? I was in rehab and there was just nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> no, like, I mean, I, um, a few years ago, I, I, my drug and alcohol problem had gotten to had reached, you know, epic proportions. I hadn't written anything since I was a kid. I remember when I was a kid, I was told to stop writing because it looked faggy. Um, and I stopped. I stopped writing for uh, a long time, but I did find, you know, um, drugs. Um, and when I got to a point where, you know, it was really bad, I decided, you know, my friends were telling me, you need to go to rehab. And I decided to go um, just to shut everybody up because I was absolutely certain that I didn't have a problem, of course. And when I got there, you know, and I, you know, honestly, there just isn't a whole lot to do um, at night. You know, I had a roommate who snored really, really loudly. Um, and so I was up and just sort of automatically, I just picked, they give you this like pad and paper where you're supposed to write down your various, you know, epiphanies and rehab. I started writing these stories, um, because I started asking myself, like, why am I here? Like, why do I, why am I really here? And I couldn't really verbalize that. And so I just decided to write the stories that I thought had helped me to wind up in rehab. And it was really strange too, because, you know, I would go to, you know, group therapy in the day. And I had this wonderful counselor who would say, 
you know, you know, you, you know, um, like Allison was saying, you know, I had these pat answers all ready to go, right? And this counselor would say, "What are you hiding? You're lying. You know, you're not telling the truth to me, nor are you telling the truth to the group." And so I would lie again, but then I would go back to my pad and paper and tell the truth. Um, and so that's how this book came into being. I wasn't ready, so to, so to speak. Um, I wasn't, um, you know, thinking I was going to write a book, but that's what it, that's what it turned into. It's interesting that you say too, um, I wasn't thinking it, it, it just came out more as the unblemished truth. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there was a point where I was like, I really do need to be here, you know? And so I would go to therapy and I would just sort of tell a little bit of the truth. And then I would go back and give the whole truth to my pad and paper wow. or my pad and pen. Yeah. Elizabeth, when did you feel like you were ready? Yeah, it's, it's, or do you feel like you're ready? <laughs> um, well, I did it. So <laughs> I'm still not ready. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, I, uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I felt like I was ready. Um, you know, just when I like very similar, uh, situations, like just when I couldn't not write it, you know? And, uh, um, it was, uh, yeah, I spent, um, a, a very long time afraid of it, like afraid of, uh, um, the, the, the the content the subject that that that's in this book thinking is just uh you know being uh very being very estranged from my mother um being absolutely ignorant of my um uh history and heritage and just being like it's it, i'm too old it's too big now like it's too big to t- take on you know uh um because at this point i was 34 years old and i just you know uh um and then uh but I don't know, all these, I guess, like, I started asking the right questions, you know, uh, um, and these, these questions, I don't know, uh, um, these questions led me to insights that were just, just pouring out of me, like, you know, like, oh, oh, well, maybe, maybe my mom drank because of this, and uh, maybe I was really um, mean and awful to her because of this, you know, and then it it just kept uh, uh, pouring out, and again, yeah, it's like, uh, um, yeah, more, more, something more like the truth, right, Uh, um, except, uh, as as opposed to what I've been telling myself for uh, a very long time, so, yeah, then it just became like, I have to, I have to make sense of it. I have to put it in it. Uh, I have to create a story, uh, a narrative for myself that is more like, uh, that makes, uh, is more like the truth to me, right? Uh, not, not something, not just something that I've been like re- re- tell- regurgitating and telling myself for, for a long time. So it's, yeah, it's very similar, uh, uh, motivations I feel like yeah mm-hmm. and, and Allison and Brian and Elizabeth feel free to to jump in if you if you if you want to comment on on each other's on each other's uh comments mm-hmm. so um I love how each of you wrote about what you know and what you don't know and what you remember and what you don't remember which is um makes it even feel more uh truthful Um, And sometimes we trick ourselves to recall and to write about the past, especially the traumas that you all are writing about. Um, 
Can you each talk about your methods um, that you use to help recall specific scenes from the past and what, and maybe what you learned about memory? Um, because I really spent so little time with my parents when it gets down to it. I, you know, part, I think one of the main reasons I write is to try to figure out where I am with things. I have to dig it up sometimes. I, I worked with a, a couple of things. I had a stack of index cards that I, you know, would write just flashes of memories that would appear in my mind. So I would, I would write those down. So I worked, I worked from that stack, which was ever evolving. I had some old photographs, old documents. I had my father's briefcase that we found after he died that was full of song lyrics and various other bits of paper and stuff like that photographs and objects. I begin this book with um, what I call five interstitial pieces, these, these little poetic pieces that I wrote that wouldn't really fit into what I call the main text appeared to me, and they sort of give the book structure. And those are a lot of memories that are bridges that I needed to use to tie together um, the narrative that I was able to, to find. Um, I had so many more questions about my parents than I even asked in the book. And, uh, you know, I considered at one point just putting a big question mark on the cover because I know, I, I realized that, you know, as close as I felt to my parents when I was a child, I knew very little about them. So I worked with those things, photographs, the stack of index cards, the documents, et cetera. And I got their autopsy reports, which I had never seen before I wrote this book. They were very revealing and also produced more questions. Things like, you know, it was revealed in uh, the police report that there had been an extra um, cartridge, a, a bullet cartridge found on the ground though there were only two shots. So, you know, a lot of sort of questions were produced, even though those reports gave me a few answers. So I, I worked that way. And just, you know, the memory, I checked, I, I have one sister, one older sister. I checked myself with her a little bit. My mama's sister is still with us. So I was able to talk to her. My daddy's sister is still with us. So I was able to talk to her. You know, I just very delicately asked some questions of some people that I thought might know a little bit more than I did. So it's all pieces and sort of juxtaposing those bits of information against my own memory and trying to tie together some sort of clear picture of who they were and what happened. I think I ultimately failed because I can not accurately represent them. I don't think there's a way that you can put on paper what a living, breathing human being actually is, but to and, But And researched around it, and we'll get to that question, um, which is really interesting, too, because you you all did this. You didn't just settle on your own memory, but you, but you wondered on the page about, you know, what if, what if, and that, I think, is um, really revealing not only of you as the narrator, but of your subject. Brian, what, what did... What did you find that you learned about memory and also um, any specific methods that you used? 
Well, I mean, I did um, a lot of similar things. I talked to people, you know, I tried to, you know, a lot of, a lot of the book is about, you know, how I felt at a certain time. Music is really important. You know, if you want any, if there's anything that can drag you into the horrible <laughs> way you felt when you were 15, you know, it's a song. You know, if there's anything that can bring out the joy you felt when you were 21, it's just, you know, a song. So music played an integral part. I really tried to sort of like settle into, before I wrote a specific, you know, passage, try to really settle into that feeling that you were feeling then. Sometimes smell can do it. You know, um, there's, the, there's a, um, uh, a store in, where I grew up called Hills Department Store. And it had a, a con, like a little uh, snack bar. There's a specific smell of that snack bar. And I found a candle that smells like that. So, I mean, you know, I did a lot of that stuff, but what I found interesting is um, how, how memory works because I absolutely hated the house where I grew up. We were poor and being poor is shameful as we all know. Um, and it was an ugly, ugly, ugly house. And I, I, I wouldn't let, I wouldn't bring friends back there, like anything. Right. So I'm writing about the house in the book and I, I describe it to a T it's this horrible, ugly Brown house. And it was falling apart. There was tile peeling. And then I go on to say that, you know, the backyard was full of just crap and junk. And, you know, it was, you know, the, the worst kind of poverty, visual poverty. Right. So my mom read the book and she said, you know, you got the house right, but our backyard was beautiful. Like I worked really hard on that backyard. There were flowers, there was a garden. And I thought, holy crap, she's absolutely right. Like, but because I hated that house so much, in my mind, I made everything about it crap and everything about it junky. Um, and I completely forgot her her beautiful tulip beds that she had put back there. And then the question for me became, was I lying? Did I lie in the book? You know, and I don't think I did. You know, it's a very sort of weird fine line there, you know, because everything about that house and that and, and growing up there was ugly to me. And, and, and my mother remembered her flower beds because she remembered everything about that house being ugly too, but she remembered the thing that she did to try to make it beautiful and I thought that that was a really interesting point about memory and what it can do that's fascinating isn't it wow the emotional truth too that you felt you 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 brought yeah because in my mind it was full of old car parts and just like all this junk and it it never was it absolutely never was yeah and you're both speaking Allison and Brian are both speaking to that you know that sensory detail that helps you take you back, you know, like the Proust cookie, you know, he got five volumes out of that cookie. <laughs> and Brian, I agree with you on the music. I found um, a couple of reel to reel tapes in, in um, that briefcase. Cause my, my family played music, you know, a couple of them had been transferred to cassette and then CD. So there's these garbled uh, sort of sitting around the living room performances, but Oh my God it takes you just right back into the middle of it. And it's so powerful. There's a, there's a passage in here called songs on tape. That's about that. It's amazing. It's amazing. Elizabeth. Yeah. I don't know. I, um, I didn't really have too much trouble remembering like it, 
once I started taking this on, like, this is what I'm going to do. And, uh, um, and, and again, like about like asking, uh, the right questions, it was just flooding, you know, uh, and, and, uh, lots of sleepless nights, lots, lots of waking up in the middle of the night, like, you know, like I did that, like, that's, that's horrible. Uh, um, remember it. That's what woke you up. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, just, just the anxiety, the, the stress and anxiety uh, w- was waking me up and then like my mind would just wander and then that's, then, then it's over. Right. Uh, and then, and then I'm, and then I'm up at three in the morning, just <laughs> uh, uh, jotting things down. And, but it was really, it was important. And I thought, and the reason why writing was so helpful is just to, is to hold all of it still. It's just like, cause it's just such a scramble. And then it's like, and so I'm holding it still just by putting it down on paper so that I can look at it. And one of the things that I learned about memory, uh, you know, uh, written memory is that you can interrogate them and analyze them that, you know, kind of like dreams. Right. And and just, you know, like what what does this part mean and what does this part mean? And it becomes sort of symbolic. Right. And then, uh, it, yeah, and it can just lead you to other places, other, other answers. And, and one of the things I noticed too, is that it goes along with what Brian's saying is that, uh, you know, why, why you're remembering it like determines what you remember, right? Like if you're, 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 I'm trying to explain myself in this way, like this is, this is the explanation I need to get. Right. And so I, and so this is how I remember, which made me feel I don't know. Uh, sometimes I wondered if I, if that made me untrustworthy, uh, um, if, you know, because, but how, how else, like, of course we're biased, like, of course, but if it served a purpose and it gave me a truth that if it gave me a truth that was, that was livable, right. Like that, uh, I, I, I don't know how, how else to explain it because I don't think it's a lie. Right. I don't think it's a lie that just, uh, just because you, uh, are remembering things a certain way to serve your purpose. That doesn't, that doesn't make it a lie. It just makes it useful to you. Right. And it's, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's how I went about it is just the, uh, the asking questions and, <laughs> uh, frantically jotting down <laughs> the, the memories and then looking at them and, and then analyzing them. Like what, yeah. Uh, uh, what do they mean? What is this here for? Why is this haunting me? Right. Like, why hasn't this gone away? I, I hope viewers are also gleaning all the agonizing moments that each of you felt to get to some kind of truth about yourselves, your lives, your your your, your people. Which I'm going to go right into the research because you're all touching on that. And to me, this is a really interesting topic because so many memoirists, I think, especially new ones, don't think of researching. They think, you know, we're just going to remember everything. And I think you can research forever and never really write the book. So how did you keep your research from like taking over your story? Your, your, how did research help or did you ever get overwhelmed by it? Well, you know, Elizabeth, as you were talking, I was thinking, well, it isn't so much confirmation bias as it is just point of view. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's the thing that I love about memoir is you don't necessarily have to tell the cast iron truth. Mm-hmm. You're telling your version of the truth. And, you know, 
I think that's why I wrote that sentence in the very beginning, which is this is my version of the story. This is the only one I can tell. I can't tell my aunts. I can't tell my sisters. I can't tell my parents. I can't tell my grandparents versions. And I'm the one writing the book. So, you know, I, uh, I've in, in my family, you know, in, in the typical sort of, uh, the family from the deep South, it's, you know, oh, we don't talk about that. And I do talk about it. I do talk about it because I know that's the only way out of it. I insist on it. You know, I've had a family member say, well, I think you've, I think you've written enough songs about family to which I respond. I think you can write your own record. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they never do. <laughs> the, the, you know, and now I've forgotten your question. What was it? <laughs> I was thinking about research. I mean, you really, you did the, the research on, on gathering some of the most um, hard to read um, uh, reports about your, about your parents' death. And, yes. But, okay. So, yeah. so tying that in, you know, my parents died when I was 14 and, you know, in a way, it was a punctuation mark about that part of my life because they were no longer with me. And I had lived some harrowing years with them. It was a lot of abuse, alcoholism, mental illness, you know, not a great way for a child to grow up. And I, you know, I don't know what memories of my own are reliable. So that's, you know, one of the reasons why I really leaned on my sister and she doesn't even know, you know, we would compare stories and, you know, most of the time our versions were similar, but sometimes they were not. It's so interesting. Um, I, I did not want to be unreliable and I did not want to um, present anything that was even on shaky ground. And I think that's one of the reasons why I got those autopsy reports. I had avoided doing that for a long time, because who wants to do that? Who wants to look at that kind of stuff? I certainly didn't. Um, and I remember vividly getting them in the mail from Auburn, Alabama, and uh, just sort of peeking under, you know, they were put together, stapled at the top, like reporter's notebooks, fold back like a stenographer's notebook. And I could, I got both of them on the same day. I could only bear to look at one on one day. And then the next morning I got up very early and sort of peeked under, you know, my father's report, like it was, you know, something's going to jump out at me, but something did jump out at me. You know, it was just important for me to have those facts. There's something about seeing a death in black and white that makes it very real. And so I included some excerpts from those reports. Um, you know, I had been told that my mother was shot in one place and that wasn't true. I didn't know about this extra cartridge on the ground. It was important for me to get some solid facts because even though I did, I still do not know the choreography of what happened with them that morning, you know, and I go through in the book, you know, positing was it this? Did they do that? Did it happen like this? I don't know. And I still don't know. But I was going to add too, you, you also wonder about your own safety. That is where I ended up. Yeah. Because I have no choice but to believe that 
well, I do have a choice, but it is my choice to believe that my mama ultimately was protecting her children. And that was probably what happened. So the research part of it is it was important for me to know as much as I possibly could before I wrote about these people in their lives because they are not here to defend themselves. I tried to be very careful about that. Mm-hmm. So getting other uh, opinions, getting other versions of the events was important to me so that I wasn't just in sort of my tunnel, though ultimately memoir is just your own heart. Brian, you were talking earlier about music, and I, I, I can't help but remember from your book, from your memoir, um, how you researched some of the musicians and some of the some of the singers who your mother admired. Um, can you talk a little bit about your research and how it helped um, or maybe sometimes even overwhelmed? I mean, I always think that research can kind of take over sometimes. It didn't take over. You know, I, I did the, I did a lot of talking to people to make sure, you know, like Allison said, like, you know, to make sure that I wasn't on shaky ground. Like, you know, I think you can get like, you know, I was talking about the flowers in the, in the backyard of our house. You can get those kind of things like a little, you know, you can fuzzy, but you can't get certain things just wrong. You can't lie uh, about things. Right. So I went, I talked to my mother. That woman was like a pinata. Like she was ready to talk. Like (laughs) it was very strange because she was a woman who held everything very close to the vest. She's from, uh, you know, Macon, Georgia. Um, And, you know, I approached her at, you know, 40, 45 or however old I was. I'm like, can you tell me about such and such? And she was like, oh, I mean, at a certain age, I just think you're like, screw it. You know, what am I, what am I holding on to this stuff for? You know, I interviewed her a lot. It was the first time I'd ever heard my mother say the word gay, you know, with regard to me, you know, but, um, and my mother loved Luther Vandross. Oh my God. It was like a, he was, he was basically a, like she was having an affair with the man, you know, um, (laughs) So it didn't overwhelm, right? Because I was learning all these things about my mother. I wrote a chapter as my mother um, uh, because I was so fascinated by the things. I didn't know anything about her life, you know, because she was just mom, right? I had completely forgotten or not or ignored the fact that, you know, she was a whole person before she was mom. She was, she had a life, she had dreams, she had goals, she had ambitions, um, a lot of which, you know, were dashed because, you know, she got pregnant in, in, you know, in the 1960s, you know, when things were different, right? But, oh my God, was that woman ready to talk? Uh, She just gave me, and she wasn't, you know, but she did say, she did put a wall up. She said, you know, there are some things that you don't talk about because it might hurt other people. And there are some things that are too painful to talk about. So the chapter that I wrote as her, I cobbled together just from her life story. And I wrote it as me, as her, trying to, you know, uh, feel what she must have felt, you know, um, in her life. Being a Black woman growing up in the South um, at that time was not easy. Um, and she was, and she gave up a lot of stuff. So for me, the research was fun <laughs> to a certain extent. Um, it was definitely edifying, you know, 
um, to learn all about my mother and her life and how she ended up with this man who ended up being my father, who ended up doing all these things, you know, so I didn't feel overwhelmed by it. It was a, it was a journey of self-discovery. You know, nobody knows you like your mother. Um, and so it actually helped to answer a lot of questions about my behavior as well. I'm glad you mentioned that, that about writing from your mother's point of view, because I'm going to talk to Elizabeth. Cause, but Elizabeth, I want to ask you, because of the, the amount of research you did, and um, you do sort of a remarkable thing in um, Speak Okinawa, which is that you take the point of view of an entire country, um, mm-hmm. and that uh, first person, plural we. And, you know, Brian mentioned that he does, he takes on the persona of his mother. And Allison, I think you also do the same thing in your book. So that's kind of an extraordinary thing. You know, it's a book about yourselves, but it's also um, populated by all these other voices. Can you talk a little bit, Elizabeth, about the amount of research you did and maybe when you like stopped or if you did, you know, like, okay, now I got to write this. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had, I had a reason, right. Like the, the, the motivation was just the self-discovery, uh, um, learning, learning about my mother, right. Which is learning about myself. Um, but I had no idea like who she was and what she went through. Um, I just knew when growing up, I just knew that she was, um, incredibly sad and incredibly lonely. Uh, I mean, she was many things, right. She's, She's an amazing person, but very sad, very lonely, and um, v- very much uh, uh, num- numbing her pain with uh, with drinking. And I, for a long time, I only blamed her for it, right? It, uh, you know, I was like, uh, get yourself together. For a long time, I thought it was only her fault. But what was so, and I don't know what, like, what even prompted me of just like, maybe I should learn about Okinawa. Like maybe I should learn about where my mom's from. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I, from, from the research, the re- research of the Island, I, uh, the things that how completely devastated, destroyed it was, uh, after the battle of Okinawa, like I had never known that it was, if I had learned about it in history, it was from the the United States point of view and just how many lives they lost, but the entire Island, was charred black. Like it was just destroyed. My mother grew, my mother was born three years after that. And the whole Island, like just, just grief, like stunned by violence. Um, and then, and then she grew up witnessing the militarization of the Island bases being built all the time and all the like, and terrible crimes, uh, committed. Uh, so she's witnessing that and absorbing all of that. And, uh, um, you know, living her life setting, you know, and that sets me up on a trajectory, right? Like how, uh, based on that, how she, how she, uh, raised me with carrying all that. Um, but knowing that history was let us both off the hook, you know, it was just, it's not our fault. (laughs) Uh, and yeah, and, and taking on the, the point of view of the country, I guess it was, I had rejected that I had rejected that part of me for so long that like taking on the we, it was not only a way to like access these things that I never witnessed, uh, uh, that still very much has so much to do with who I am, uh, but also a way to claim it. Like th- this, this, this is, this is mine too. Like I, you know, uh, um, uh, so like, and it's still perpetuating, right. It's, it's, yeah. So, 
um, yeah, that, <laughs> that was a lot to, to learn, but yeah. so, so necessary. Wow. Can I ask you all maybe to talk a little bit about what you're working on now? We got all of what, three, four questions. We um, we have um, maybe 10, 15 left. <laughs> but I could go on, but I, I think uh, our time is coming to an end now. But maybe we can, um, you can wrap it up by by sharing with, with us what you're working on now. I started a new book. Oh, yay. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything about it. I want it to be a surprise. Um, I started a new book uh, and I'm working on uh, something for uh, television. So um, that is exciting. Um, I'm going to go back to teaching uh, next year in California. And then I'm thinking about becoming like an exotic dancer. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> we are looking forward to that. <laughs> maybe, maybe to some Luther Vandross. <laughs> exactly. What else? What else? <laughs> to really switch it up. <laughs> great. I have a new book coming out next month, actually. Um, another memoir. This one is about life with my son, John Henry, who uh, was diagnosed with level three autism at age 23 months. He is now 11, and um, the book is a series of essays about our experience together. Another <laughs> gut-wrenching, yet much more joyous book. So that'll be out next month. So I'm getting into that whole process again. We will look for it. Yeah, same. I'm, uh, I'm just little whispering inklings of writing a sequel because <laughs> I'm, you know, st I'm still learning a lot. I'm still learning a lot about my parents, learning a lot about myself and uh, just trying to figure out uh, where to put it, you know, and, and how to put it. So that's, uh, that's what I'm doing now. <laughs> that's the perfect way to end this. Where to, <laughs> yeah. where to put it and how to put it, which is basically mm -hmm. what writers are doing everywhere. <laughs> Um, I want to thank you all so much for uh, participating in this virtual Zoom Mississippi Book Festival panel. I just really admire all of you as writers, as talents, as exotic dancers. Uh, and I can't wait to read your, uh, your next work, whatever it is, um, however it comes. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, telling people about it, too. Just uh, wonderful to have you all. Thank you so much for joining us. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.